0-800-242-0032. Our production team for tonight's newscast is El Khan, Tom Flynn, Khalid Mosley, Kane Schlesinger, and Laura Klinkner. The producer is Jenny Okuyama. Special thanks to Free Speech Radio News. Our engineer is Wesley, the potentiometer, Sayway. The Cable Evening News and Public Affairs Director is Charity Marchant. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash evening news. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at KBOO News. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K2A2BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Jenna Yokoyama. And I'm Kanan Schlesinger. Coming up tomorrow morning on KBOO at 9 on Alternative Radio, Gary Young speaks on the fear-mongering around gun rights and the young people that are caught in the crossfire. At 10, Chris Andre hosts Air Cascadia, headlines, interviews, and commentary. At 10.15, Letters and Politics presents Georgetown sociology professor Michael Eric Dyson, who is visiting KBU today to discuss his new book, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Mr. Dyson will perform a reading tonight at Powell's at 7.30, by the way. At 11, on stage and studio, Dime Roberts speaks to the artistic director of Triangle Productions New York, Forever Dusty, a play about a famed singer, Dusty Springfield. And at 11.30, it's Art focused. Andre Middleton presents Creative Women Making a Difference. He'll talk to Natalie Figueroa about YGB and previews Renee Lopez's solo, life, solo show, Life Through My Lens. Thank you, KBOO members, for your generous support. If you're not currently a member, you can become one by going to kboo.fm and clicking on Donate. That is the evening news. Good night, Jenna. Night, Kane. Night, Charity. Good night. Good night, Wesley. Wesley. Good night. Good night. Kabu Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Portland Fixed Fair, starting at 9:30 a.m. on Saturday, January 28th, at George Middle School in Portland. Fixed Fairs bring people together to learn simple and effective ways to save money and be healthy at home this winter. They feature exhibits and workshops from numerous community partners throughout the day, in both English and Spanish, on topics such as food and nutrition, community resources, recycling, and more. Again, that's the Portland Fix-It Fair on Saturday, January 28th from 9.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. at George Middle School, 10,000 North Burr Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Portland Underground Grad School. Classes that begin in February include food, social identities and justice, Western art, navigating white spaces, internalized oppression, our psyches, plus pushing back, and more. Portland Underground Grad School is also known as PUGS. Classes take place all over the Portland metro area. Information about registering, Teaching classes and more can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This KBU program is made possible in part by KBU Foundation members and a grant from Radio Cab, the transportation choice of Portlanders since 1946 
with service 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Radio Cab has a mobile app that allows you to book a cab with your phone. Available at the App Store, Google Play, and at radiocab.net. Or, if you prefer, you can talk to a real person at 
You're listening to KBOO Portland. The time is 6.08. Up next is Caravan of Glam. And finally, a bill to outlaw so-called cure therapy for minors in upstate New York, called the Prevention of Emotional Neglect and Childhood Endangerment, has raised a few eyebrows in Washington. Erie County legislator Patrick Burke may not have spelled it out, but the apparent namesake of his bill is a self-identified Christian conservative Republican in that order. He's claimed that being gay is a choice, and as a congressman, he voted for a measure that would have constitutionally banned civil marriage equality nationwide. As Indiana governor, he pushed a so-called religious freedom bill to create state-sanctioned anti-LGBT bias. He also proposed diverting funding designated for HIV-AIDS prevention and education to gay conversion therapy. Yep, the Prevention of Emotional Neglect and Childhood Endangerment Bill is named for Vice President-elect Mike Pence. That's News Wrap for the week ending December 10th, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Carol Myers. We're counting down to a historic This Way Out program 1500 at the end of the year and finding lots of historic moments along the way, like the classic clash in Colorado we'll recall later in the program. But first, here are some historic facts Vice President-elect Mike Pence probably wishes he had known before he bought those tickets to a certain Broadway show. Alexander Hamilton, first Secretary of the Treasury, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Alexander Hamilton was a hero in the Revolutionary War and later the first Secretary of the Treasury under President George Washington. He was born in 1757 in the West Indies. As a highly intelligent youth, he came to America and began his education. He was soon sidetracked, joining the Colonial Army as an officer. Because of his evident abilities, General George Washington chose Hamilton as his advisor. Hamilton had relationships with both women and men, the most intense bond being with fellow advisor John Lawrence. When they were apart on military assignments, they exchanged affectionate letters. Hamilton once wrote to Lawrence saying, I wish, my dear Lawrence, it might be in my power, by actions rather than words, to convince you that I love you. In 1782, Lawrence was killed in a military skirmish and Hamilton felt the deepest affliction at the news. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Jay White. You're listening to This Way Out, brought to you by you. Your charitable donations keep this program on the air. We've produced some special CDs to say thank you to our supporters. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm a supervisor in San Francisco. And I'm gay. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. 
And here comes the National March on Washington for lesbian and gay rights. Today, being gay is not a crime. This is going to lead to the legalization of same-sex marriage. Today, I finally get to look at the man that I love and say, will you please marry me? Ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, Donald Trump. As an African-American, as an openly gay man, and as an American, that frightens me. I hate to say that Donald Trump unified us for that one. Whatever it takes. Our latest CD special, Trump Trauma and the Dawn of the Donald, is hot off the presses and available now at thiswayout.org. And remember, This Way Out's queer history CDs make unique holiday gifts, too. The year was 1996. The U.S. Supreme Court decision upholding state laws that criminalized private consensual adult same-gender sex had been in effect for a decade, and it would take another seven years before that ruling would be overturned. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was two years old, and the Defense of Marriage Act was just weeks away from passage. It's been 20 years now since the highest court in the land concluded that gays and lesbians were entitled to equality under the law, a frequently forgotten ruling that laid the foundation for virtually all of the court-ordered legal advances for the LGBT community that have followed. The case involved Colorado's Amendment 2, a ballot initiative whose purpose seems eerily similar to North Carolina's discriminatory HB2 of today. We're taking a look back at Amendment 2 as we count down to This Way Out number 1500. But first, let's set the scene with newsrap Cindy Friedman reporting on the competing queer-related U.S. headline story for the week of May 20th, 1996. In the U.S., legislative activity continued against recognition of gay and lesbian couples. This week, U.S. President Bill Clinton himself made a clear statement that he would sign DOMA, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, if it came to his desk in its current form. As I understand it, the only legal effect of the bill is to make it clear that states can deny recognition of gay marriages that occurred in other states. And if that's all it does, then I will sign it. Now, having said that, I do not favor discrimination against people because they're homosexual. And you asked me what I would say to, to gay Americans who may disagree with me about this issue. I'd say, look at my record. Name me another president who has been so pilloried for standing up for the fact that we shouldn't discriminate against any group of Americans, including gay Americans who are willing to work hard, pay their taxes, obey the law, and be good citizens. And let me just say, even though I, I will sign this bill, if that's what it does, and that's what I understand it does, this is hardly a problem that is sweeping the country. No state has legalized gay marriages. Only one state is considering it. We all know why this is in Washington now. It's, it's a, one more attempt to divert the American people from the urgent need to confront our challenges together. Now, that's really what's going on here. This has always been my position on gay marriage. It was my position in 92. I told everybody who asked me about it, straight or gay, what my position was. I can't change my position on that. I have no intention of it. But I am going to do everything I can to stop this election from degenerating into an attempt to pit one group of Americans against another. 
Every time we do that, the American people make a mistake. We are a better country than that. We're a greater country than that. And we ought not to do it. And I'm going to do what I can to stop it. And signed Doma he did. In the dead of night, without ceremony, and without allowing the religious right to use marriage equality against him in the upcoming presidential election. What Bill Clinton could not have guessed in 1996 was that the case to watch was not the pending marriage rights lawsuit in Hawaii, but the long-running anti-discrimination battle in Colorado. For the first time in the history of the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that gay and lesbian Americans are entitled to equal protection under the law. We got a good decision, folks. It's going to have an impact for many, many years to come, and we all made it possible here in Colorado. In its most important ruling impacting lesbian gay rights in the past decade, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Colorado's Amendment 2. The voter passed referendum which prohibited statewide anti-discrimination protections for gays, lesbians, and bisexuals attempted to amend the Colorado Constitution in order to overturn protections that had been passed in the cities of Denver, Boulder, and Aspen. The measure would have also prevented similar protections from being enacted elsewhere in the state. The first judicial shot against Amendment 2 was fired by Denver District Court Judge Jeffrey Bayless in January 1993, two months after 53% of Colorado voters passed the initiative. Do the plaintiffs have a reasonable probability, given all of the law that the court has examined, of proving that Amendment 2 is unconstitutional beyond a reasonable doubt? Yes. The motions for preliminary injunction are granted. And the defendants, the governor of the state of Colorado and the attorney general of the state of Colorado are enjoined from declaring Amendment 2 in force and are enjoined from enforcing Amendment 2 until further order of court. Bayless eventually made the injunction permanent and on appeal, the Colorado Supreme Court agreed that Amendment 2 violated the state constitution. Finally, on May 20th, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the case entitled Romer v. Evans that the measure violated the U.S. Constitution. Ironically, the decision came almost to the day on the 100th anniversary of the Supreme Court's Plessy v. Ferguson ruling, which upheld separate but equal accommodations for African Americans. Writing for the 6-3 majority, Reagan appointee Justice Anthony Kennedy said Amendment 2 was contrary to the U.S. Constitution's Equal Protection Clause because it limited the ability of gays, lesbians, and bisexuals to equally participate in the political process. In his 14-page ruling, Kennedy dismissed the state's argument that anti-discrimination protections gave gays, lesbians, and bisexuals special rights. He wrote, the amendment withdraws from homosexuals, but no others, specific legal protection from injuries caused by discrimination, and it forbids reinstatement of these laws and policies. He further noted that Amendment 2 unfairly identifies persons by a single trait and then denies them protection across the board, an act he called unprecedented in our jurisprudence. We must conclude that Amendment 2 classifies homosexuals not to further a proper legislative end, but to make them unequal to everyone else. This Colorado cannot do. A state cannot so deem a class of persons a stranger to its laws. That rebuke was received with indignation by Colorado Attorney General Gail Norton, who argued in support of Amendment 2 before the Supreme Court. The court's decision is insulting to the Colorado voter. 
It mocks the democratic process. Frankly, I expected much more from the United States Supreme Court. Boulder attorney Gene Dubofsky, who argued the case against Amendment 2 before the court, had this response to the charge that the decision undermined the democratic process. The court said, voters of Colorado, you may have adopted this, but it deprives a targeted group of people of basic constitutional rights, and that can't stand. The court's three most conservative members, Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Chief Justice William Rehnquist, issued a bitter dissenting opinion. Citing the last major Supreme Court ruling involving lesbian rights, the 1986 Bowers v. Hardwick decision, which upheld the state of Georgia's right to criminalize consensual adult homosexual sexual activity, Scalia wrote, If it is rational to criminalize the conduct, surely it is rational to deny special favor and protection to those with a self-avowed tendency or desire to engage in the conduct. Amendment 2 is designed to prevent piecemeal deterioration of the sexual morality favored by a majority of Coloradans. Striking it down is an act not of judicial judgment, but of political will. The court's decision in the case elicited predictably favorable response from the major U.S. lesbian rights organizations, although most cautioned that the ruling does not guarantee gay and lesbian rights in America. Lesbians and gay men are exactly where they were before, which is without protection. The Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund's Beatrice Dorn. Essentially where we are is we are free to seek by legislative means protections against the discrimination which we suffer. The important thing to understand with today's ruling is that gay people can still be fired in 41 states in the United States. The Human Rights Campaign's David Smith. This court decision is a welcome decision in light of the congressional gay bashing that has taken place in the last couple of weeks. The anti-gay marriage bill that is introduced in Congress two weeks ago, and they had hearings on it last week, two years before any law will manifest in Hawaii that could actually make it possibly legal for gay people to get married, begs the question, don't they have anything better to do? Will Perkins, chair of Colorado for Family Values, which engineered the placement of Amendment 2 on the state ballot and campaigned for its passage, repeated the standard argument used to promote the measure. You see, it's important to understand that Amendment 2 was never about people. It was about conduct. And to give a conduct that is uh, considered to be reprehensible by the majority of people and put it into some kind of a preferred status, in my view, is an extremist action. Kevin Tebedeau, who founded Colorado for Family Values, but left the organization earlier this year under a veil of suspicious accusations, also repeated the religious rights argument that protecting gays and lesbians from discrimination would open the floodgates to moral destruction. Anything goes. Because of this ruling, there will be no logical or reasonable um, explanation as to why pedophilia, why bestiality, why uh, bigamy and polygamy cannot be denied to anybody that claims it. Evan Wolfson, director of the Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund Marriage Project, said the Supreme Court's Amendment 2 decision could favorably impact the current campaign for same-gender marriage. Wolfson pointed specifically to the court's conclusion that no legitimate government purpose was served by denying gays and lesbians equal protection. 
There are also four federal appeals court cases dealing with the issue of open gays and lesbians in the military, and Michelle Beneke of the Service Members Legal Defense Network described the Amendment 2 ruling as incredibly important to all gay and lesbian litigation. For the first time, gays and lesbians are recognized as citizens under the Constitution. Colorado's Governor Roy Romer, who had urged defeat of Amendment 2 during the 1992 campaign and is the only governor to veto anti-same-gender marriage legislation this year, said he hoped for reconciliation among the battling partisans. Now, I know the issue of sexual orientation is one on which many disagree, but I make this appeal. Let's find out how we can live together with our differences rather than spend our time dividing over this issue. Priscilla Inkpen, a Boulder County minister, says she was a bit surprised to be thinking about how the pro-Amendment 2 forces must be feeling and also stressed the need for reconciliation. But I really want to say that to the people who feel like they've lost today, that we're not trying to destroy the family. We're not trying to destroy American values. We, we want to uphold American values. Uh, we want to have families and be accepted by our families and be able to live in this society. And that's what this case has been about. Colorado, Colorado, when the world leaves you shivering and the Choosing This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. This week, Wenzel Jones, Carol Myers, and Judd Proctor and Brian Burns with Jay White contributed program material, with thanks as always to Steve Pride. Sweet Honey in the Rock and Judy Collins performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Yavana Foundation, the estate of Christopher David Trentum, our contributing affiliate stations, and the individual listener donors who made this program possible. Join the countdown to This Way Out number 1500 and find out the three things you can do to add your support at thiswayout.org. Email TWORadio at AOL.com or write to us at P.O. Box 1065-Los-California-970078-USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and all of us at This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org and on KHEN Salida, Colorado, Chiapa Radio, Tampa, Florida, 3CR Fitzroy, Victoria, and more than 200 other stations around the world, including this community radio station. Now y'all stay tuned.
This week on Making Contact. This is bullying. I've seen comments from adults, not even students, adults, talking about something that they largely have no idea about. I've seen teachers that I've had, people that I've looked up to and respected, publicly denounce me. Transgender youth and adults faced a heightened state of struggle in state houses, schools, and institutions in 2016. Much of the fight was over rules and regulations about identity and gender expression. And I'm gonna go back to San Francisco and I'm gonna walk down the street and I'm gonna see a lot of boys and girls, transgender boys and girls, that are hungry, that are, that, are, that are laying in sleeping bags on the sidewalk, and I don't get it. In this edition of Making Contact, we look at a few examples of the struggles and victories over the regulation of gender identity and expression in the U.S. Social safety nets are set up to provide for the most vulnerable populations. They may be seniors on limited incomes, long-term unemployed or underemployed, in a troubled relationship, a former inmate, or a young person on their own for the first time, any of whom may also be transgender. Reporter Larry Buell explored how social service providers in San Francisco and Los Angeles meet the needs of transgender clients, and he found that some can be more welcoming than others. So this kind of changes from morning to afternoon. It's way more active in the morning because the computers are available. The computers are James Morin is a program supervisor at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. He's taking me on a tour of the youth drop-in facilities. Watch TV, they have computers. It's new and bright and painted in turquoise and citrus colors. It's a place you might want to hang around for a while. If you're gay, lesbian, trans, or even LGBT allied youth under 25, you can drop in, get a meal, a hot shower, pick up a change of clothes. Sometimes we do like spelling bees, we hold community forums. And if you're homeless, you can stay the night. Twelve emergency bunk beds are provided by the center, and ten are paid by L.A. County. They're always full. The residential facilities that we have are open to everyone, but the majority of the people who are able to who are access them are trans because they're our most vulnerable. Because, he says, transgender and gender non-conforming youth are at the greatest risk of exploitation and violence on the streets. I am 19 years old, and my gender is that I'm a trigender. Trigender is basically a gender where you fluctuate between three genders. Mine, I float in between being pangender, which is encompassing all genders, and then female, and then Demi-female, which is female but having male characteristics as well. Rachel suffered abuse from her stepdad, and when she was 12, she was placed in foster care. A note, we're using a pseudonym to protect her identity. She had a fallout with her latest foster family over her gender identity. That landed her on the streets of Long Beach. After two weeks, she learned about housing options with the LA LGBT Center. She scored a space in the center's long-term transitional housing, which, like its emergency shelter, is at capacity. Sleeping in Long Beach by the um, Hyatt over there, I was jumped and people stole my bike. People would always try to get me to go into their cars and try, I guess, to sell me out because they took some of my friends out the same way. By trying to sell her out, Rachel means prostitution. One in five transgender Americans has been homeless at some point. The Center for American Progress estimates up to 40% of homeless youth are trans. But there's only one temporary shelter for trans people in the U.S., 
That's in San Francisco. It has 20 beds, and that's not enough to meet the demand. There's a big reason why many trans women are more likely to end up on the street than trans men or cisgender men or women. If they haven't had reassignment surgery, they're forced into male-only shelter spaces, and they don't feel safe sleeping in a room with cisgender men. Shelters will take you in regardless of your um, gender identity or sexual orientation, but most of the shelters will house you based on your authentic gender unless you've had surgery. Army vet Stephanie Page has a good job at the Veterans Administration in San Francisco. Her employers are supportive of her transition, and she's able to afford a place of her own. But she says if she didn't have a friend with a sofa before she landed on her feet, she might have ended up on the street. As a trans woman, if I went to a shelter and say, hey, I need a place to sleep, if I were able to get in, first of all, because the waiting lists are just enormous, I would be forced to house with uh, cisgender men. Um, because I've not completed my medical transition yet. Most trans women would relate to that and would be like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'll sleep in my car. I'll park, you know, at a Walmart parking lot. I'll set up my tent, you know, somewhere remote away from town, whatever it is I have to do, because I would feel safer doing that than being housed in a large room with, you know, 10 beds with, with nine men staring at me from all directions. You know, no, no, thank you. I'll pass. My name is Drian Juarez, and I am the program manager for the center's Transgender Economic Empowerment Project. Drian helps her clients find jobs by first helping them overcome a lifetime of judgment for their gender nonconformity. We get picked on if we were assigned male at birth, for example, for being too feminine, or if you were assigned female for being too masculine. And so then we start experiencing that discrimination early on that really can be traumatizing and can make it so that we grow up with social awkwardness, with fear of people. And that makes it difficult to go out and get a job, to go out and interview. So yes, you know, from the onset of of childhood, um, the discrimination we experience sets us up for difficulty. This is something that Rachel knows well. If you were to go into the interview, you could tell because as soon as I bring that up, their faces drop and then they stop really paying attention to what I have to say. Depending on their circumstances, Drian's clients may need to heal from the trauma of being kicked out of their family or from incidents of violence or from the exhaustion of trying to fit into a society that sees gender as binary. The system for helping people get economically empowered or stable is already stressed and very flawed. You know, there isn't a lot of funding. You have people who have huge caseloads. Um, and so when you put trans on top of all of that already, uh, it seems insurmountable. And when you're talking to a case manager who's never worked with a trans person, then those cultural competency issues come into place. They start using the wrong pronoun. They use offensive language. They want to refer the trans woman, for example, to a men's shelter because in their minds, again, identity is based on genitalia. And so that's what complicates matters, that a system that's already stressed and not doing a good job, um, you know, when it comes to trans issues, does even worse. I've heard this over and over. There are LGBT services like the LA LGBT Center and the Center in San Francisco, and there are general services for everyone, regardless of gender or sexual orientation. But there are very few services in the U.S. exclusively for trans and gender nonconforming people, even in San Francisco. 
and I'm going to go back to San Francisco and I'm going to walk down the street and I'm going to see a lot of boys and girls, transgender boys and girls that are hungry, that are that are that are laying in sleeping bags on the sidewalk. And I don't get it. I met one trans woman with an ambitious plan to help other trans people from slipping through society's cracks. In 1985, Michelle Lael Norsworthy, then a young man, was arrested for second degree murder for killing a man in a barroom fight. I was uh, basically I was a bully. I was just a vicious tough ass. In the late 90s, prison doctors diagnosed Norsworthy with gender dysphoria. She began hormone therapy in 2000. Years later, prison doctors said she needed gender reassignment surgery due to her chemical castration from long-term hormone treatment. The state of California refused to pay for it. In April 2015, the Ninth Circuit Court ruled that the state must provide surgery. That August, Michelle was abruptly released from prison without surgery. They had a policy in place that was prejudice or bigoted. It was against transgenders. It was written. And so it was their own bigotry that defeated them. Michelle moved into a halfway house for female drug addicts, though she's been sober for decades. She says this was the only place she felt safe that would take her. I found advocacy groups that um, claimed to be providing services, but when it came right down to it, uh, what I discovered was they were directing uh, transgender people to the same services that the government provides already to everyone. I want to create a house, a residential community, strictly for the transgender community. And I also want to get shelter status for them so I could take any transgender as they approach with that need, with uh, with the homelessness, uh, hunger, or, or in need of uh, direct services of any, you know, any supportive services that a transgender person might need. I want to be able to provide that immediately so shelter status would do that. What we've got is we've got a social system that's set up. It's slanted against the transgender community. Michelle got her nonprofit status in the summer of 2016. For Making Contact, I'm Larry Buell. You are listening to Making Contact. Thanks to generous support from listeners like you, this program is offered for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up, we'll hear from Gavin Grimm, a high schooler who made Time Magazine's 30 Most Influential Teenagers of 2016, and a report from Los Angeles on how their public school district works with transgender students and their families. Tenth grader Gavin Grimm began the 2014 school year with a request to be treated as a young man according to his authentic gender. That included access to use the boys' bathroom at Gloucester County High School in Virginia. Gavin is transgender and says he was born male with a female body. School administrators considered his request and took steps to ensure that Gavin be treated as a male student by teachers and staff. It all appeared to be going well enough until some parents and their supporters complained. Seven weeks into the school year, the Gloucester County School Board intervened and voted to ban any transgender student in their district from using bathrooms for their identified gender. The ACLU quickly responded by filing complaints with the Department of Justice and the Department of Education on the boys' behalf.
Joshua Block is a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. Initially, Gavin hit the local news when he was up there all by himself um, in front of a school board meeting. Hello, everybody. And it was just him talking in a room of hostile adults. I prepared a speech today, but I think in light of the comments I've heard, it's it's better for me to speak um, without this paper. The result of that meeting was that they postponed an ultimate decision on on what to do. And um, Gavin, all by himself, was on the local news all over the place. First of all, to address the most um, pressing, the, the most recurring theme I've seen, everyone here that's spoken about me so far has referred to me as a girl. This is the first mistake, seeing as I very simply am not a girl. We know um, as a scientific fact that there is in fact research to support that this is in no way, shape or form a choice. I want to address the questions, why can't I use the nurse's room? Why can't I use a separate bathroom? Why can't I use the woman's room? First of all, I did in fact have to use the nurse's room for the first part of the year. This was alienating. It was humiliating. And seeing as the nurse's office is in one place in a very large school, it took a lot of time away from my education. I want to also uh, address the comments that maybe I am unsafe. No, I'm not. I use the public restroom, the men's public restroom, in every public space in Gloucester County and others. I have never once had any sort of confrontation of any kind. No student at the school has ever confronted me in the restroom. No, and no adult in any venue has ever had a problem with me exercising my right to use the restroom. The adults are the only people who have been trying to restrict my rights. I've never been happier exercising my right to be who I am. I did not ask to be this way. And it's one of the most difficult, difficult things anyone can face. This is bullying. I've seen comments from adults, not even students, adults, talking about something that they largely have no idea about. I've seen teachers that I've had, people that I've looked up to and respected, publicly denounce me. This could be your child, your sister, your brother, your niece, your nephew. I am not the only transgender student in Gloucester County, and I deserve the rights of every other human being. I am just a human. I am just a boy. Please consider my rights when you make your decision. Thank you very much. The first meeting actually was put on the agenda at the very last minute. Gavin and his parents didn't even know about it. They heard through third-hand information the day of the meeting that the board was going to discuss the topic of restrooms. And so Gavin and his parents showed up. Gavin was forced to effectively out himself to the entire community as the, the transgender boy who was using the restroom. And after public comments during that meeting, the school board decided to consider the issue for a couple weeks before coming to a final decision. And they took a couple weeks and they got input from the Department of Education, from the ACLU, and from advocates on the other side of the issue. And they ultimately um, passed the policy that they did, which categorically barred Gavin from using any boy's restroom anywhere on school property.
Gavin Grimm and the ACLU sued the Gloucester County School Board for allegedly discriminating against the teenager under Title IX and violating his civil rights. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in Gavin's favor, but the school board petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to review the decision. In October 2016, the Supreme Court said it would hear the case. It's, it's very rare to see uh, a school board and in a community uh, enact an entire policy that's sort of prompted by one specific kid just using the bathroom. And what was pretty amazing was that all of the objections to Gavin using the bathroom weren't really about Gavin. They were all sorts of wild theories that if we allow him to use the bathroom, then that means that at some future point, some hypothetical you know, sexual predator could come off the street and use the girls' restroom. When in the meantime, you have a human being right in front of them who's just trying to use the bathroom and isn't causing any harm to anyone. The concoction of a hypothetical bathroom predator isn't unique to Gloucester County School Board. It's a message that's been echoed on the debate floor of state houses across the country. According to a 2016 report by the Human Rights Campaign, 20 states introduced 55 bills that would make it legal to discriminate against transgender people. Some of the bills would have limited transgender access to public spaces and programs, spaces like bathrooms, sports teams, and locker rooms. Others would have allowed for businesses and individuals to discriminate against transgender adults and children with impunity based on religious or moral beliefs. Three bills passed in Mississippi, Oklahoma, and North Carolina. So who is pitching these bills to lawmakers? It's, be, it's conservative religious activist movements. It's Alliance Defending Freedom and Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council that for years have been framing their agenda around barring uh, gay people and same-sex couples from marrying, and they've moved on to transgender people as the next target. The policy that was written uh, by the Gloucester School Board was drafted in the first instance by this group, Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, and Alliance Defending Freedom has been shopping that policy around to school districts across the country and to legislatures across the country. ACLU attorney Josh Block. The Obama administration and the Departments of Education and Justice all came out aggressively in 2016 in defense of civil rights for transgender students. Their efforts underscored Title IX, which prohibits discrimination based on sex and gender identity. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for being here. U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch and the DOJ Civil Rights Division filed lawsuits against several public entities in North Carolina, including Governor Pat McCrory and the University of North Carolina. The DOJ's action was in response to a suit filed against the agency. None of us can stand by when a state enters the business of legislating identity and insists that a person pretend to be something or someone that they are not, or invents a problem that does not exist as a pretext for discrimination and harassment. Back on the West Coast, 
The LA Unified School District has a longer history than most when it comes to addressing the needs of transgender students and their families. Reporter Lena Nozizwe looks at the role LA School District played in the passage of the historic School Success and Opportunity Act. The law clarified the rights of transgender students in California public schools. There are, however, some students who wonder about the effectiveness of the policies. LA Unified decided that it was high time that we took a very serious look at how we were supporting our transgender students. We saw that our students were having challenges at school, they were disengaged, and their academics were suffering. That's Judy Chasen, both the head cheerleader and chief implementer of the Los Angeles Unified School District's policies regarding LGBTQ and transgender students, testifying three years ago in front of the California Senate Education Committee. The topic is AB 1266, and she's explaining how LA Unified Schools came to set forth a model policy in 2005 that has been replicated around the country. The state's adaptation of LA's policy became law in 2014. What's known as the School Success and Opportunity Act reaffirmed the rights of transgender students. Our policy was both simple and profound. All students shall be able to attend school, learn, and participate in school activities, all the while having their gender identity affirmed and respected, regardless of their assigned birth sex. I am a multi transgender non-conforming femme youth of color. I am queer. I'm a queer trans person. Well, the 2011 Youth Risk Behavior Survey found that about 11% of students attending Sorry, folks, we're having a little technical difficulty here. Identified as L- I'll see if I can fix that, and we'll be back. Thanks for your patience. DQ. Those students.
This KBOO program is made possible in part by KBOO Foundation members and a grant from Radio Cab, the transportation choice of Portlanders since 1946, with service 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Radio Cab has a mobile app that allows you to book a cab with your phone, available at the App Store, Google Play, and at radiocab.net. Or, if you prefer, you can talk to a real person at 503 227 1212.
This KBOO program is made possible in part by KBOO Foundation members and a grant from Portland's Gay Directory, providing a resource guide of openly gay-friendly businesses, organizations, and services since 1996. New smartphone app available for all iPhones and Droids. For more information, you can visit gaypdx.com. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Roots Before Leaves, an open styles jam on Saturday, January 28th from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Groove Nation in Vancouver, Washington. Roots Before Leaves will feature dance, ciphers, battles, fashion, and art with preliminary competition starting at 4.30 p.m. and the main event starting at 6 p.m. Again, that's the Roots Before Leaves an open styles jam on Saturday, January 28th from 4 to 10 p.m. at Groove Nation, 5411 East Mill Plain Boulevard in Vancouver, Washington. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Tune in Tuesday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. for The Melting Pot, featuring DJs, producers, and electronic artists from around the globe. Win tickets and stay up on events each and every Tuesday from 8 to 10 p.m. on The Melting Pot, right here at 90.7 FM KBOO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's really going on? This is Boost from the Coop with Hard Night Radio. You gotta be there. What up, y'all? It's Aya Sage, a.k.a. Rocky Rivera. And you're listening to Hard Knock Radio. News, views, hip-hop. David D, Hard Knock Radio, hanging out with you this afternoon.